0: It's been 50 years since today's $18 Big Mac was $0.65, and there are a lot of similarities between today's economy and the one from 1974. Thanks for joining us here on Wealthium. I'm your host, Andrew Brill, and we'll dive into that right now. Our mission here at Wealthion is to help all of us keep and grow our money. Through interviews with our experts, we'll break down economic trends, markets, and investments. But Wealthyends not just a channel; it's a conversation with our community. So please keep the feedback coming. If there's something you'd like us to talk about, or someone like you'd like to hear from, let us know. And if you could like and subscribe to the channel, we would really appreciate it. I'd like to introduce you to and welcome Brett Rentmeester from. Winrock Wealth Advisors. Wealthion has partnered with Brett and Winrock, so when you ask to speak to a registered investment advisor, it's Brett or one of his partners that'll be reaching out. Brett, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Andrew.
0: So Brett, you've written a newsletter, Echoes of 1974, and it's fascinating. Everyone should give it a read. You can find it at winrockwealth.com. So you're saying history repeats itself.
1: Yeah, uh, well, at least rhymes, as they say, right?
0: Yeah. So you you wrote this article about 1974. And after reading it, I realized that we're in a similar situation today than we were back then. What made you look back 50 years and say, you know what, I'm going to write an article about 1974. This isn't George Orwell type of thing, but it's 1974
1: versus today. That's right. Well, truth be told, I turned 50 this year and uh, was born in 1974. So like so many of us do, We sometimes pause and look at the world today versus the world we grew up in or were born into, especially those of us with children, and uh, have to explain to them in our day, we had three television channels and, you know, all the differences. And yet, as much as the world was different back then, it dawned on me that there's a fair amount of similarities and things to pay attention to that are maybe cyclical, maybe not exactly repeating, but cyclical that... uh, think are worth thinking about uh, and what ways hasn't the world changed or what are some of the things that we should be thinking about that might have been a lesson we learned 50 years ago and is kind of outside of the collective consciousness at the moment. So we're living
0: in today's world. So take me back to 1974 and what the economy was like and what inflation was like and interest rates back then, because everything was, I know inflation was high, interest rates were high and we were trying to get a handle on it all.
1: That's right, and, and you know the '70s were a complicated decade, and I think most scholars look back and want to just kind of write it off because it was thought of as a high inflation, low growth, so-called stagflation, stagnant economy with inflation period. But the reality is, uh, like we're discussing today, things are cyclical and not a linear, you know, pattern. So it's not as if the '70s were just about inflation. You know, the reality is the '70s started with inflation as people got, you know, concerned about the spending, social spending, plus the Vietnam War, et cetera. And by 1974, inflation was really rearing its head, much like we experienced last year. And um, that was a concern. But right around 1973 and 1974, a pretty damaging recession took hold and uh, pulled everything down. Inflation and interest rates came back down, but not as low as they had been. So kind of a higher low. And I think... Probably at the time there was a general thinking of like, shoo, we, we got through that without inflation soaring. But what it set the stage of with, with the same behavior going forward was a second wave of all of these problems that we all think of when we think of the 70s. We think of you know the, uh, the inflation rate that got to near 14% and short-term interest rates that peaked at, depending how you measure it, about 16.5%. All of that happened at the end of the 70s into the 80s. And so a question on the table is, are there similarities to 2024 relative to 1974? And, and what does lie ahead?
0: So we, I, I would assume the Fed is trying to avoid the the 74 to 80 trajectory that you're talking about. And look, just Tuesday, the CPI came out and inflation's still over 3%. If you take out the the core stuff, Food and energy, we're still over 4%, or right around 4%. So it looks like the Fed might even push off. We know they're pushing off a, a March cut. I mean, that I think that's baked in the cake there. Probably not in May, but we'll have to obviously the numbers will have to bear that out. But do you think the Fed is trying to look back at that time where not? really look back, but think about, look, you know, we don't want to get into a position where we start to drop rates and everything goes haywire again.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think they certainly know some of the lessons from it. I, I think the fundamental difference between the 70s and, and today is that we have so much debt. And, um, you know, it's not just the $34 trillion you know, acknowledged official debt. It's all the unfunded liabilities that, you know, some people will come up to a present value, what you need today of a couple hundred trillion. It's just the staggering amounts of debt. So they almost they can't get our, you know, they can't get things uh in the predicament where rates run away from them, or they wouldn't like to see that because that that kind of blows up the system at some point. But they're a little bit stuck here because inflation's here and and whether Whether or not they raise rates next meeting, et cetera, is less important than just looking at the trajectory of where not only the U.S., but where Europe, Japan, all the developed countries, seemingly to me, have too much debt. And not only that, but they're spending above and beyond that. There's no change in behavior. There's no budget in the U.S. right now. Uh, So, you know, it seems obvious to me that we're going to run into trouble at some point with that kind of forward-looking thinking.
0: Explain to us how that works, $34 trillion. It's gone up, I guess, in the last month, another trillion dollars. We have to finance this debt somehow. And with interest rates to where they are, you explain in the article that someone's going to buy that debt, but it's going to cost our country a lot of money to finance
1: that debt. That's absolutely right, Andrew. And, um, you know, the shocking thing as we enter 2024 is, is there's been little talk about that. But The numbers we've seen have estimates somewhere in the neighborhood of a $2 trillion deficit. That means you've got to issue bonds to cover the shortfall of $2 trillion. And then we've got upwards of another $8 trillion of existing debt that's going to mature and have to be refinanced. So together, that's $10 trillion. It's roughly a third of our official debt that has to come to market. And we've got that at a time when rates are already much higher than they have been. And at a time where a number of countries are starting to move away from the U.S. dollar or at least look at alternatives. So, as I've always said, you're going to find a buyer. Argentina finds buyers for its bonds. But at what price? And and that's the unknown. That should, all else equal, keep rates higher than they'd normally be in this kind of predicament.
0: So it, volatility is is a, a major concern here where, you, you know, we see the we see it coming inflation coming down, but we don't want it to spike, but there's all these factors that are weighing. We, we see, you know, economic data come out, the market goes down six, 700 points. You know, we may be fickle and maybe tomorrow it goes back up a couple hundred points, but there's that, there's that, You know that rise and fall how does an investor like i I don't have a strong stomach (laughs) how does an investor you know our viewers protect themselves against you know all these waves and peaks and valleys
1: yeah it's a great question i think um listen the, the conventional view has been that a stock and bond balance portfolio get you through the ups and downs and and that's worked very well since the 70s, but since the 70s, we've been in one kind of period, and that is a period where interest rates have been coming down, and that force lifts all asset values, stocks and bonds. Now we're at a little more of an inflection point, and I think going forward, the more conventional stock and bond mix is gonna be challenged, where they both run into trouble, stocks and bonds, oftentimes is in a rising interest rate environment or one with high inflation. What tends to do well in high inflation? If you use the 70s as a lesson, Hard assets, tangible things that can't be printed out of thin air tend to go up in value if governments are irresponsibly printing money and and being careless. And so just speaking to what happened in the 70s, we know oil and gas were up tremendously. We know real estate was up. We know farmland was up. Pretty much take any hard asset with a somewhat limited supply, and those are the things that did very well. So I think for today's investor, the general guidance is... You kind of need one foot in the old world, which is stocks, bonds, conventional things. But you need a foot in the world that says, you know, we might be at this inflection point. And we've got to think a little bit different about the risks ahead of us than, than maybe the last 20, 30, even 40 years.
0: I was reading that uh, you had talked about fuel prices were up high, food prices are up high. Now we're at the point again where food prices are high, housing prices are high, but energy costs are low. Is this... An
1: anomaly? Yeah, I mean, a little bit, a little bit. Um, it, it, some of these markets are hard to explain. I mean, we, uh, we have been not in energy markets until COVID. And when COVID hit, you might remember the day where the print of oil went negative. We became buyers of energy. So that didn't make any sense to us either. Um, so the world is going through some gyrations. but But I think I think energy having some energy exposure is a good hedge. Energy has always done well during periods of geopolitical conflict and turmoil, and we've got another war uh, of unknown consequences brewing in the Middle East. So um, it's it's harder to map out than some asset, you know, prices. But I, I think, uh, yeah, it's something that ought to be considered at a high level.
0: Something that, that I, I I really enjoyed from the article is looking at McDonald's when you talk about food prices that are going up and, you know, the price of a Big Mac. There was just an article the other day of, there's there's places in this country where the Big Mac is eighteen dollars. Now, right. that to me is not fast food. <laughs> that is a lot of money for a burger, especially McDonald's. But back in the 70s. The Big Mac was 65 cents. A large fries was 46 cents. So you add that up a dollar ten. Add, throw in a drink. You're talking about a buck and a quarter for a meal that just the burger now is going to cost you 18
1: bucks. That's right. And, and we all see it. We all see it, right? You go to a nice restaurant and the hamburger is now what the steak used to be. And so and I think that's why investors are nervous, because no matter how much money you have or how prudent you've been, um, the money's just not going as far. And when we talk about inflation, that's a rate of change. It's not like prices have come down. The rate of growth may slow a bit from where it was. It um, doesn't mean prices are coming down, at least in the things you need. So I think that's, that's likely to be a, a more permanent fixture of the kind of uh, backdrop we have to deal with in the next decade.
0: Yeah, that was something else I was, I was reading, is that services are going up. They continue to rise while cost of certain goods are actually coming down.
1: Yeah. I mean, I like the saying, everything you need is going up in price and everything you, you know, in the discretionary things, maybe you don't care much about, they're going down. I mean, some technology stuff will keep coming down, but but you're right. I mean, just speaking as a, as a business owner, whether you're looking at your annual insurance growth rate or, you know, all these services, accounting, legal, I mean, it's just on a, a continued upward trend. So, um, again, I think I think that's more of the reality of the backdrop we're going to face.
0: And I'm certainly no expert. do you see the Fed trying to get i obviously they're trying to keep it things and not have and have inflation come down. Do you see some sort of cuts coming towards the end of the year?
1: It cuts as far as interest rates? yeah well, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think what we've created is kind of a bubble making machine where Uh, Times get tough. We print a bunch of money out of thin air. We jam it into the system. It has an effect. It lifts the tide and then things start waning. And the Fed stays there kind of kind of where we're at today, not wanting to do too much. But inevitably, that breaks and they panic and they come in and they do it again. So I I think the next time we're truly going to see, you know, at least a big printing of money and a big push to, to Perhaps bring the cost of capital down is in the face of a crisis, which, you know, whether we're, whether one's upon us now or something's out there on the horizon in a year or two, I think, um, yeah, I I think that is the playbook and that's what we should expect. But I don't think that happens until such time that there's a big enough crisis that forces their hand or an exogenous event where they can say, well, it had nothing to do with our policies. It was this thing over here that we couldn't have foreseen uh, to take the blame off of, of policy.
0: Your next lesson, Brett, in the the article is about extreme stock valuations, and it's interesting that you know we used to have the Nifty Fifty back in the seventies, and now we have a, a very much a, a smaller amount of stocks that are really holding up the S and P, the Magnificent Seven, and. That's right. uh, Talk to us about, you know, what people were thinking about the Nifty 50. I know you did a ton of research about this stuff. What were people thinking about then? Because it was a more diverse group of stocks. I mean, 50 stocks, not all in the same sector. The seven stocks we're talking about now are all in the tech sector.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah, I I would say, you know, anytime the market's being dominated by a smaller and smaller group of companies, the more dangerous it is in some respects, so today is an extreme. seven companies driving everything, but back then, even fifty so seven companies is about one uh, percent plus or minus of the s and p five hundred are pretty much dictating the pace, and plenty of people have done analysis that if if you Take the market cap weighting out and you make it an equal weighted index, you know, you really didn't have much gain at all in the S&P. And you look at that relative to international stocks, emerging market stocks, they haven't benefited from the game. So it's kind of been the only game in town. But like the 70s, you know, I, I think the lesson is or the tech bubble that no matter what the promise of some of these companies and in the 70s, it was great growth names like McDonald's, like um avon like some of the pharmaceutical companies you know those were the growth engines of the time and there was a general thinking that it was a buy and hold decision just buy this basket and don't worry about it and of course when the last guy did that is when they corrected 50 to 80 percent so not suggesting that's imminent for us but i think anytime a market's being driven by fewer and fewer stocks especially in the world we're in where a lot of the investors are not people like you and I, Andrew. These are algorithmic traders chasing things with no loyalty to the long term performance. They'll be in and out you know, be- before we react. Um, it's a more dangerous fact pattern.
0: Yeah, so back in, in in 1974, if somebody, say, at the age of 30 were to have money in the market, you probably would have said to them, oh, you know what? Don't worry about it. It's cyclical. It's going to come back. May take 10, 20 years. You have that time, but we have people that don't have that time now. They're of retirement age or thinking about retirement. What do those people do? Because there's got to be a correction coming at some point. I would assume I'm no economist and I'm no you know master at the market, but I have to assume that there's a you know at some point people going to say AI okay, it ran its course. It's still great, but these stocks are way overvalued. How do I protect myself from? my retirement savings going off a cliff.
1: Yeah, that's right. And listen, even for young investors, I've actually never bought into the idea that just because you're 25 or 30, you should just take risks no matter what. I think there are a lot of markets, there aren't clear um, warning, you know, red lights flashing. But I think when you get to more extreme valuations, even aggressive investors ought to take heed. And, you know, for people that don't have time to recover from losses, you're right. I think, you have to really think about your equity exposure not only uh, not only the overall size of the allocation, but what underlying names you 've got, and whether you 're taking profit along the way or you 're letting a position just get bigger and bigger. Um, I think those are the type of investors that uh, have to do a real uh, risk analysis at, at this kind of juncture
0: What are the risks of these way overvaluations. you know, I, I know that, you know, look, we went through it with the dot com bubble and everybody's like, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. But these valuations seem to be high. Look, you know, 10 years from now, we could be looking at this and say, "Yo, those valuations were way too low. But right now, what are the risks of, you know, these six or seven stocks, you know, being valued the way they are?
1: Yeah, well, they're big. I mean, we saw we, we only have to go back a year. I mean, twenty twenty-three was a rebound year from twenty twenty two. The NASDAQ I think, lost thirty-five or so percent. And the Nvidia's of the world and the, the leaders that everybody's in love with today lost half their value. So we've seen it real time. It's just we've got such a short term orientation here, especially in the West, where uh <laughs> you take that hit and tomorrow it's forgotten about. So Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, honestly, one of my biggest lessons when I first started my career was the tech bubble. And I remember as an investor buying EMC, which was data storage, and every projection into the future was data is going to keep growing. They're the leader of storage. And it did keep growing. And they were the leader of storage. And they still fell 90% didn't (laughs) recover. So, um, you know, valuations can get so far ahead of what a company can deliver that you can, these are great companies. And there's no question... Some of this AI stuff will be extremely disruptive, but the question is: Are we in a hype cycle first, where things go too far too fast, correct? And then you want to be there to pick up, you know, pick up the the bargains? We're not.
0: Yeah. GameStop comes to mind, where the hype, the hype, the hype, and all of a sudden, right. you know, th- that fell off a cliff. You know, I, I I don't think, you know, maybe we're hyping AI, and it's so new that everybody's like, oh, I have to get in, and we're gonna see probably more IPOs even that they're coming back into into play on you know, companies that have AI that are thinking, you know what, we're going to try and raise money to really grow our company.
1: That's right. And uh, listen, you're in media, you remember the internet revolution. I mean, it wasn't like everything just did well. It was very disruptive. If you it, it, There were winners and losers. Some industries got totally gutted out by the internet. So I think with AI, you're going to see something similar that... AI is going to replace a lot of the middlemen, a lot of the things that uh, don't require, you know, a skill beyond following, you know, steps. From I don't know, you could say the legal profession has some risks, CPAs, tax accounting, you know, go down the list, but it's disruptive. So there will be pain in the economy to get to a better point where these tools are working and people find other other roles or enhanced roles in the same value chain. So. Um, it's not as if we just jump from here to there and everything's great, and it solved all the problems of uh, of the world.
0: Yeah, it's I I was I heard something funny that said AI isn't going to replace people; it's only going to re- replace the people who don't know how to use it. So. Yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, we're all going to we're all actually uh, going to have to figure out how to use it sooner or later, because it's going to become part of our, our like our everything you do is is connected to AI now. So it's absolutely uh, the algorithms are, are just there. So, you know, I, I don't want to get into any political discussion, but part of your article talks about political instability. Back in 1974, we had a president that resigned right. and. A country that, uh, let's just say they weren't too happy with our
1: country at that point. We're in a similar spot now, aren't we? I think we are. I think we are, Andrew. And, um, you know, these things go in cycles. Um, but in the West, our whole system is based on faith and confidence. You know, faith and confidence in what? Your elected officials, the financial institutions, the decision-making And I think there's a lot of discontent, and it's not just on one side of the aisle or the other. It's it's a general question of we're living well beyond our means. We're spending money seemingly in every direction. Um, And it is a question of faith. And there are big thinkers like an author I like, Neil Howe, in The Fourth Turning, that that have a cyclical view of history that say at a fourth turning, about every 100 years, and his timeline's about now, people start losing faith in the institutions that served prior generations well, and they just don't work anymore. So whether you want to talk about Social Security really running out of money or the FDIC really having not much relative to what claims could be, I mean, these old institutions that were put into place 50 to 100 years ago um, have served us well, but we might be evolving beyond some of that. And I, th- I think um, loss of faith means maybe a tearing down of some of the old and that will be painful, but a rebuilding to a better spot, hopefully, uh, that's more uh, in line with where we're headed. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y ycom These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent
0: any disease. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing.
1: Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, I bet you get 20, 20, I bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month. So,
0: give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch.
1: $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Talk to me about how uh, this is an election year. How does that play into markets
1: and how people invest, if, if at all? Yeah. You know, that's a great question because um, there's, there's a common belief, and I think it's statistically proven that, hey, the Fed's kind of accommodative going into an election year um, and markets are good. And I think the averages probably prove that out. However, there's some huge exceptions to that. Um, 2020, it's election year, and that was COVID, right? Um, 08 election year, great financial crisis. Before that, election year, doing the tech bubble. So it's kind of like someone saying to you, yeah, on average, things will be good. But if they're not good, they tend to be really bad. I don't know. I I think this is a a different kind of environment than we've seen. It's uh, more polarized. It's more charged up. And uh, I don't know. I I think uh, there's more caution warranted than kind of a normal cycle.
0: Yeah. You know, given the economy, I know the economy is a it's a big political talking point. And, you know, I guess you can spin the economy however you want when you're a politician say, oh, you know what? Things are terrible under Biden. And then Biden's going to say, well, you know, I inherited something terrible and look what I did. So, you know, that's definitely used as a as the economy. I guess you can spin it any way you want if you're a politician.
1: Yeah, you can and ultimately all the data has gotten so much more complex. Like GDP includes government spending. So if we hadn't spent trillions of dollars, would the numbers look good? I don't know. Um you know, earnings were pretty weak last year outside of the big tech. So were earnings great? I don't you know. It is harder to decipher and, and, and work through that. So I think you're right. You can tell a tale either direction right now.
0: So you know, we, we talk about politics, we you you touched on global conflict. And that's one of your lessons from 1974. In you know, back in the early 70s, we were, you know, there was plenty of conflict. The Vietnam War was going on. Um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, geopolitical stuff happening. And we're right back there again today. I mean, you, you talked about uh, the Yom Kippur War in your article. And the day after that, you know, 50 years later, was the invasion of Israel by Hamas. So, how does global conflict and geopolitical things affect the economies?
1: Yeah. Well, listen, I think we'd be naive if we said war is good, right? I and mean, we're destroying lives and buildings and, and other things. But uh, you know, the markets kind of brushed past a lot of the prior conflicts. Um, I think this time around it's a little different. I think um <sighs> You know, a number of countries have debts that can't be serviced as rates go up. And war is a convenient excuse to tear up all those obligations and reset the rules and say, again, hey, it wasn't us. It was this. That's why we had to change the program, not pay you back, et cetera. So um, we're watching it carefully. I mean, certainly we don't have any crystal ball. Um, but I think anytime you've got major powers all in a, you know, in, dangerous spot. It's it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, All the world wars, um, you know, they took time to develop. There were facts and patterns when you look back before the big events that looking back in time, you could recognize as trigger events. So, you know, we're looking for things like that, but but it's not good.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of countries around the world whose economies are in far worse shape than ours. As a matter of fact, our economy looks great compared to theirs. How does that affect A, the U.S. economy, and how does the world economy affect everything that goes on here and around the world?
1: Well, obviously, we're all much more integrated now. So when China goes into a major slowdown, you have to ask the question of, is it because they're the manufacturing floor of the world? Is it because orders are down or is it something unique to China? Or, you know, if we create another credit bubble in the U.S., like has happened with housing and other things in the past, and that collapses, um, that spills over to the rest of the world. So, I mean, we're interconnected, and yes, we've done better on paper, but we've also had the benefit of the printing press, the ability to kind of print money out of thin air without, until recently, without outright inflation that was troublesome. So, the real question is are we going to get ourselves in a predicament where that's not the case, where we can't just print money out of thin air to get ourselves out of the next trouble spot, especially with? You know these BRICS countries and other people starting to pull back and rethink the idea that everything's got to go through the dollar system.
0: Which brings us to our our next lesson in the article is currency, and you make the point of of currency kind of evolving for a hundred years and then kind of changing. Now we saw it with the euro, I guess, back in right around 1999 2000 are we and now we're we're cryptocurrency is becoming right. the, the buzzword and we see bitcoin jumping near 50,000 and um you know are we at a point where the dollar could be changing
1: yeah and i think you're referring to you know we looked back and other people have done this work to to see that you know the british currency was before us, and prior to that, it was Spain and Portugal, and they all had about a hundred year reign as being the reserve currency used around the world. And they didn't go away after that. There's still people are still using those currencies, but they pulled back. Um, so the question is where are we in the life cycle of the dollar? And it, it seems like we're at a point where bigger events are starting to happen. Now, is there a heir apparent? No, because all of the other countries, you mentioned the euro, the euro, the yen, the Chinese, yuan, they all have major issues. They all are indebted. They're printing too much money. So this is kind of a global issue right now on, on currencies. And uh, it may be a different kind of path. I think in the past, there might have been a new currency to jump to in the fiat currency world. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think it's going to be more binary. One path might be, hey, they just can't make obligations anymore. And they seem, the centralized powers seem to want to take us to the central bank digital currency, CBDC world, which is not cryptocurrencies. That's a controlled programmable money kind of future that maybe they can do something different with. And free markets are starting to take us more towards maybe gold and silver. I heard Zimbabwe, I don't know if it's true, is looking at at gold-backed currency. We have other countries that are openly endorsing Bitcoin from El Salvador, To other countries that have gotten friendlier towards it. So I think the free markets are saying, give me something that can't be printed out of thin air. Could be gold and silver, could be Bitcoin, could be other things, but they're recognizing that the problem today is squarely on the side of governments just outspending any reasonable levels. So we'll see.
0: Is this a good time to get, you talk about gold and silver, I know gold price was down a little bit on Tuesday, but is this a good time to get into that sort of thing? Because that could protect you a little bit from the volatility of the market, even though gold prices can be slightly volatile, but gold prices seem to always go up.
1: Yeah, and I think gold and silver are a patience trade. You know, they're gonna protect your purchasing power. So back to the McDonald's example. You know, a silver coin today or a gold coin buys you about the same McDonald's, we use McDonald's, McDonald's stuff at Today versus 1970 versus if McDonald's was there in 1900. So it's a purchasing power play, um, and it's for people that are just getting concerned. So the old answer might have been, "I'll just have all my money in bonds. I'll, mo- I'll move to be more defensive." But now there's a real concern not only about inflation and what that does to bond purchasing power, but also to, I don't know, our government's going to pay me back. Um, you know, I know some of the studies in the Great Depression where people got paid back ultimately, but there were periods where interest was frozen, and they got it many years later. So a lot of people are reliant on money today. Um, I I think in a world where the problem is too much debt and printed money, yes, uh, physical gold and silver play a very fundamental role in just protecting wealth.
0: And how can investors balance their need for growth opportunities? Obviously, you know, gold, silver might be one of them with, you know, stability and risk management.
1: Yeah, I think that's, it's thinking through an entire portfolio. And again, I guess the comment I make um, is a lot of advisors are still, what I'd say, investing like it was 20 years ago. It's the stock and bond mix with maybe an occasional hedge fund or something. And, you know, if they don't like stocks, they're going to go from 75% to 70%, like small little moves. I think realistically, you've got to make bigger moves when the data suggests it. So, you know, when interest rates went to zero percent, we weren't sitting there in tons of bonds. But now that short rates are at five and a half percent, we've moved more money to clipping that safe coupon as an example. So I think it's about balancing out a portfolio, but going beyond stocks and bonds. And that can include hard assets. It can also include private investments that are more readily available, ranging from the right kind of private real estate to the right type of private equity. I mean, personally, I'd rather be in the private markets playing the AI kind of themes than chasing something at a, you know, 35 times sales multiple. Um, So, you know, it's not that you can't take any risk. We're always in a world uh, where you've got to take calculated risk. But I think there are times where there are warning signs where even if you're the most aggressive investor, you dial that back and you put yourself in a position where if things do fall, you can actually play offense. And that's not investor psychology. Investor psychology is to chase when everything's running. Or as Warren Buffett said, you know, you, you want to be fearful when other people are greedy. Are other people greedy right now? It seems like it. It seems like we're closer to that than not.
0: So talk to me a little bit about Winrock. You're our new uh, registered investment advisors. Talk to me a little about about your, your philosophy and how you can help our viewers.
1: Yeah, thank you. And we're thrilled to have a partnership with Wealthion. very excited about it. Um, I think we bring a different flavor to um, the wealth management space, quite honestly. Um, and there's a lot of good advisors out there, don't get me wrong. But a lot of them are set in that kind of conventional mindset and building portfolios with data that was optimized post-World War II. And I just think that misses a lot of where we're headed. So I'd say the two unique attributes about us, other than being an experienced, dedicated team of utmost client service is that we're willing to have more of a discerning macroeconomic point of view, but only at times where there's really an anomaly. Um, So in other words, we we went into COVID, believe it or not, very cautious, and we got very aggressive when COVID hit. And then we've been harvesting gains since, and we're cautious right now. So that's not how every advisor works. Most kind of stick in, like I said, the stock bond mix, yeah, maybe 5% here or there, move so i think a little more of a macroeconomic point of view and positioning based on that and combining that with a more of an entrepreneurial mindset and that doesn't mean risk taking in fact i think entrepreneurs are very savvy risk return kind of thinkers um so what does that mean it means hey we were early cryptocurrency investors uh, we were early in you know a um concept in real estate considered build to rent where you're building communities that are, uh, they look like little single family homes, but they're rented out and they're trying to meet the need for the fact that it's very unaffordable in some of these key markets to buy your first time home. So um, a little more of an entrepreneurial mindset is what you tend to see with bigger investors, these so-called family offices or billionaires. They like private deals. They like to do interesting niche things that are harder for advisors to do. So we're trying to put a little more of a macroeconomic flavor on what we're doing and combine it with some really interesting bottom-up private opportunities that uh, aren't as typical.
0: So that's what you get with Windrock, Brett, where can people find you on social media?
1: Well, that's a great question. I mean, we, uh, we're on Twitter. Uh, I think the best place, honestly, right now is to go to our, our website, winrockwealth.com. Uh, but we're on LinkedIn, Twitter, and, and other sources as well.
0: Well, Brett, thanks so much for joining me. I hope everyone gets a chance to read the newsletter. That's a wrap on another discussion here on Wealthion. Thanks again for joining us. If you need help being financially resilient, please head over to Wealthion.com. Sign up for a free no-obligation consultation from our vetted, registered investment advisors. That would be Brett and Winrock. And remember to follow us on social media for the latest news and information to help you invest wisely. Thank you for watching, and until next time, stay informed, stay empowered, and may your investments flourish.